everyone. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Rera Rambuda, and I am a campus minister at UJ Kingsway. Um, I, I love campus ministry. I've been doing it now for like the last 12 years. It's like the best thing you can ever do. So if there are any students, I'm sure the MSA students are here. I just want to celebrate you guys. Like... You encourage us to keep doing what we're doing. When we see you pursuing God, it's such a, it gives life to us as campus, as campus ministers. I'm sure you are all aware that today is Palm Sunday. Now, Palm Sunday is a special day in Christianity. The reason Palm Sunday is a special day is because Palm Sunday marks the beginning of an important week in Christianity. Now, Better yet, I think Palm Sunday marks the beginning of an important week in the history of the world. Palm Sunday marks the day when Jesus decided to go to Jerusalem for the final time. So Jesus walks into Jerusalem knowing that he's going to be crucified. He gets into Jerusalem and there's a whole lot of commotion that happens, a whole lot of stuff that happens inside Jerusalem, and eventually he's crucified on the cross. He dies on the cross. Three days later, he resurrects from the grave. After he resurrects from the grave, he stands before everyone and he offers the gift of salvation to anyone who would believe. He stands before everybody and he says, hey, look at me. I am the only one who died, came back from the dead, and I'm never going to die again. And when I was on the cross, I died for your sins. So he offers this gift of salvation to you and I. I, I don't know how this makes you feel. But for me, it makes me feel loved. It makes me feel special. The God of heaven stepped down out of heaven, came into this world, and chose to die for me. For me. I feel loved. I feel known. I feel embraced. Because I feel loved, because I feel known, because I feel embraced, I cannot help but to respond in worship. I cannot help but to respond and to say, you, oh God, are good. I love him. I love him with every part of me. I love him because he died for me. I love him because he created me. I love him because I know him. So Palm Sunday starts this journey for us, this very important week in Christianity. When we say Palm Sunday, we are talking about the start of an important day for us. A day that reminds us that our King died for us. So this morning, what I want to do is I, I want to look at that event, that initial event where Jesus went into Jerusalem. I want to look at it and I want to ask a tough question. Here's the tough question I want to ask. There's this word, right? There's a word that's used in culture. When we use this word, we usually use this word to denote that someone needs to change. So this word is used for, to label people who are extremists. 
It's a word that we use to say that that person ought not to be in the fold. It's a word that's used when we look at people and we are trying to get them to change. So it's a word that we use to shame people. It's a word that, as Christians, we don't want that word to be placed on us as a label. We don't ever want to be called this word. I know everyone is thinking, what is this word? What is this word that, that he's talking about? The word I'm talking about... It's a word that, when it's mentioned, we usually mention it so that the people that we are mentioning to would look at themselves and they would go, I don't want to be this person anymore. Here's the word. The word is fanatic. I was like, oh, I thought, it was a big, I thought it was a big word. What word was it? It's fanatic. But pause for a second and think through what does the word fanatic mean? So the word fanatic as defined in the dictionary, this is how the dictionary defines it. It says, a person filled with excessive and single-minded zeal, especially for an extreme religious or political cause. So if I, if I say to you, just think of fanatics, here are the people that you would think of. You would think of people that are so convicted of their cause that they believe that violence is allowed. You would think of political people with political ideologies that believe that their political ideology is so important that they are allowed to commit violence to get their goal. So here's what I want to do with this word this morning as we think through Palm Sunday. I want to interrogate this word. I want to interrogate this word and ask this question of this word. In this word fanatic, another word that could be used instead of fanatic would be extremist. In this word fanatic or extremist, are there any elements of this word fanatic that are redeemable? Now, if there are elements of this word that are redeemable, the, the, the solution there or the application would be, how can I then use the redeemable part of this word to enhance my worship to God? Right? Now, if this word fanatic is not redeemable, and none of us want to be called fanatics, and none of us want to be called extremists, then our application would be, how can we glorify God and worship God in such a way that we are never called fanatics? All the, straight, all the straight line people, all the linear people are with me. They understand what I'm saying. But I, I appreciate that the creative people in the, in the crowd are thinking, wait, you're only giving us two options. What's the third option? So here's what we'll do. We will look at this word. We'll see this word as it plays out in the text we are going to read this morning. And we are going to ask, is this word redeemable? Again, if it is then we're going to find out how can we enhance our worship to God with what's redeemable from this word. If the word is not redeemable, then what we are going to do is we're going to say, how can we worship God in such a way we are never called fanatics or extremists? 
Now, if there's anything in the middle or a gray area that I'm not aware of, we'll follow the Holy Spirit and we'll go there. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you that at the reading of your word, we are transformed. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we sit before you, your word, your word changes us from the inside. So we invite you this morning to give us your word, your word that changes us, that makes us new. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to obey your word. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you would make us people that love your word. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. So please open your Bibles with me to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, from verse 1 all the way down to 14. I'm going to read this word, and as I, as I read the scriptures, what you'll see is, you'll see a hint of this word that I spoke about, fanatic, playing out throughout the scripture. So let's read the word from verse 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he shall send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foul beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowd went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, was stirred up and saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Amen. Now, it sounds like a fuzzy story. Here's what happens. Jesus is going into Jerusalem. He tells his disciples, go get a cult, bring the cult. He gets on the cult. As he's going into the city, there are people that are walking with him in a procession with him, hailing him and singing to him as though he is king. Okay, let's be real right now. Jesus is not the king at that moment. There's an actual leader of the people. There's an actual emperor who rules and reigns at that time. 
But Jesus gets on a donkey and he's going with people, people like yourself and I, who are busy shouting, Hosanna to this king. Can you imagine? You wake up one day and you hear that there's a procession happening downtown in Johannesburg. It's going to go from downtown Johannesburg all the way to the union building. And this procession, there's a guy, I won't mention the name, but there's a guy, he's going to be going with this procession and everybody there is going with him and everybody is telling, is telling, is shouting that this is the new president of South Africa. Everybody's watching this person going there and everybody's seeing this person and you are watching this. What would you think? You would think these people are radical. You would think that these people are probably extremist. You would think that there's something wrong with these people. Why are they doing this? Why are they exalting a mere man? That's what we would all think. So a lot of times we read scripture and we put ourselves in the shoes of the people that were with Jesus. But sometimes we actually need to think about what were the people thinking that were not part of Jesus' crew? They're just seeing a guy on a donkey being hailed king going into Jerusalem. They're thinking, are these people crazy? Dare I say it? They're asking themselves, are these people extremists? Are we in danger from these people? But let's take a a breather, move back a little bit, and ask this question. Why is Jesus going into Jerusalem? So here's what we know. When Matthew writes the gospel, he has one thing that he wants to do. He wants to communicate to the readers that Jesus is the Messiah sent from heaven to die for us. And what he does, the way Matthew does it, he writes the book. And you know, like the first line of Matthew, he, he, he writes and he says, this is, the, this is the story, this is the account, this is about Jesus, the son of David. The very first line of Matthew tells us that Matthew is going to be talking about the account of Jesus, the son of David. Now, to us, it just sounds like, okay, it makes sense. I mean, we, we then read and we see how Jesus is like uh, under the lineage of David. But you must understand, the son of David meant something important to a Jewish mind. The son of David meant that there's going to come a time, as was promised to David, there's going to come a time when someone from the line of David would establish the throne in Jerusalem and they would rule and reign forever. So when Matthew writes and he says, Jesus is that person, he is making a radical claim. A radical claim. Jesus then starts his ministry. You remember he turns water into wine, but how do you remember, how do you remember the story? The, his mother goes to him and says, hey, they need more wine. Jesus responded, what did he say? He said, what did he say? My time is not yet, right? But then he does the miracles. You remember the miracles? He walks on water, but before walking on water, he multiplied the fish and the loaves. And immediately after multiplying the fish and the loaves, they wanted to make him king, right? And what did he say? He said, no. 
And when you read the story of Jesus from Matthew's perspective, from Matthew 1 all the way to 20, Matthew is introducing this Jesus who is the son of David. But here's what Jesus keeps doing. He keeps hiding the fact that he is the son of David. He keeps hiding the fact that he's the Messiah. It's not an open secret. I mean, it's open. If you look at him, you can see that he's the son of David. If you look at the miracles that he performs, you can see that he's the Messiah. But Jesus is careful not to announce it. Why? Because the hour had not yet come. The time had not yet arrived. So Matthew 1, all the way to 20, Jesus is showing to the world that he is the son of God, but it's almost like a hidden thing. And then in verse, in chapter 20, verse 1, the season changes. The season changes. And when the season changes, Jesus almost comes out of hiddenness and into the open so that everybody can see him for who he is. And here's how Matthew writes it. Verse, 20, uh, verse 1, uh, chapter 20, 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Interesting phrasing. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Sounds like there's something there that's there. First question, where is the Mount of Olives and why is it important to be mentioned? And where is Bethpage? Because I don't know Bethpage, I know Bethany. But where's Bethpage? So Bethpage was a town or a village just next, just by Jerusalem, close to Bethany. So it's important that you realize that this town is close to Bethany. Why is it important to realize that? Because Bethany was the place where Jesus performed one of the most powerful miracles ever seen in human history. That's where Jesus resurrected Lazarus. Lazarus was resurrected. Lazarus was a walking proof that Jesus has the power to raise the dead. So the people within these villages, within these towns, they had seen that miracle. They had seen Lazarus alive. So when they hear that Jesus is coming, they understand, they appreciate that the person who's coming, this person has the power to raise the dead. So they are aware that this is not just anybody who's coming here. This is the person who has the power to raise the dead. So, it says that Jesus is going to Bethpage. Then he says, by the Mount of Olives. Why is it important that Matthew puts it there that we must know that they were walking by the Mount of Olives? Now, the Mount of Olives means what you think it means. It means a place where olives grow, and therefore it's the place where oil was made. Now, oil is special. We all need it. We all felt it when the oil price went up. I don't mean like oil as in like the other oil. I mean fish oil. <laughs> when, the, when the price of oil went up, it was a crazy moment. But back then, olives were important because they could then make olive oil. But olive oil was not just used for cooking or to put in food. It was actually used to anoint the kings. 
what they would do is that they would press it. They would press it. And then they, after they would press it, they would get this oil and it was special oil. And they would take this oil and then they would go and anoint the kings with that oil. So when Matthew writes and he says, Jesus is walking past the Mount of Olives. He's saying Jesus is confirming that he is the anointed one. The oil that's here is supposed to anoint him. The season has changed. See, when you study the, the, the story of Jesus from, from 1 until 20, you see Jesus as, as a healer. You see him as the Messiah, but, but, but he's a Messiah who's like almost hidden. But the season has changed. He's no longer playing games. He's no longer in hiding. He's coming out and saying, I am your king. So here's what he does. He's going to this place where the, kings, where the oil to anoint the kings is made. He says to his two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Okay, let's process this. Disciples, go to the next town. Go to the next village. When you get there, you are going to find a donkey and a colt tied. Untie them and bring them to me. I don't know where you're from, but in my world, that is called a crime. <laughs> you don't just go into a person's house or a person's yard and take their possession. Unless it's your possession. Unless you are taking what rightfully belongs to you. Now, in the olden days, kings were crazy. And they had crazy power. Just think of the worst dictator that you know. And then maybe multiply that by ten. Kings believed that everything within the vicinity of their land was theirs. So what they would do is they would take possession of whatever belonged to them. Now, some kings were very smart. And they knew that they could not overburden themselves to the people. So what they would do is that when they needed possession, when they needed something, they would pay the person. How many of you remember the story of David refusing to take a field unless he paid for it? How many of you know the story of Ahab who tried to do the same thing, who tries to buy land, but the owner of the land says no? I mean, can you imagine saying no to a king? What happens after that person said no to the king? Scripture tells us that Ahab's wife, Jezebel, then plotted to have that guy killed. What happened after that guy was killed? Ahab went and took possession of that land by force. Kings had the right, or they gave, they didn't, I don't think they had the right, they gave themselves that right to go take by force that which belonged to people in their vicinity because they said it's mine. What if I propose to you that if God is the creator of all things, then all things belong to him? So the disciples go as they are told. Here's what it says, the next verse. 
And immediately you will find the donkey and untie it. And then bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. If anything says, no, 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 you can't have this. You must tell the person who's telling you you can't take this, that Jesus needs it. And when you say that phrase, Jesus needs it, that person is going to let go of it. Okay, let's, let's put this in practice. I come to you after the service and I say, give me the keys to your car. Pastor Carol needs it. She sent me. How many of you would give me the keys to your car? No, you wouldn't. So why would a person give their possession to Jesus? So there are many theories we could put in here. One, Jesus already had had a conversation with this person. So this person was, was aware that Jesus was borrowing this, or maybe Jesus had already paid. But that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says, if they ask, you must tell them, I need them. So why would a person rightfully or wrongfully give up their possession to Jesus? If you found out that there was a God who rules and reigns, created you, died on the cross so that you could be restored to him, what would you hold back from him? If you were convinced that Jesus really is who he says he is, what could you hold back from him? The people in this town, they had seen Jesus. They, they, they knew him. They had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. They had heard stories of him multiplying fish and, and, and bread. They, they, they had seen the miracles he had performed. They were convinced that he is different. There was nothing that they could hold on tightly to. They were willing to let go of stuff for him. So the owner of the donkeys lets go of the donkey. And then Matthew writes and he says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt and the, the foul beast of burden. Let me give you another perspective again. Let's step out of this story. Let's not associate ourselves with a person who was giving stuff up. Let's associate ourselves with the people who are seeing this person give the donkey and the colt away. Can you imagine you are that person's relative? You find out that they have a donkey and a colt that they use for their business, that they use to sustain their own lives. And a guy just randomly came into the town or a guy is coming through the town who purports to be the king of Jerusalem, and they are, taking their, they are taking their donkey and they're giving it to him. I don't know what you would call that person, but you would most likely call that person a fanatic. You would probably say there is something wrong with that person. But this person gives up their possession. 
And then he says this from verse 8. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Pause there. Jesus says to the disciples, I want you to go and do this. Scripture says the disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. Do you know what happens when you have a king? (laughs) You don't have a no. You only have a yes. So they go and they do as they're told. They brought the donkey and the colt, and then he says this. It says, they put on them their cloaks. Now, that's an old word that just means their outer garment. So here's what the scripture is saying. It's saying the donkey arrives with the colt. The disciples take off their outer garments, their tops, right? And they take their clothes, and they put their clothes on the donkey, so that Jesus can sit on them. Okay, let me say it again. <laughs> so Jesus, are, they, they, Jesus tells them to go get the donkey. They get the donkey, they bring the donkey, and now that the donkey is there, they make a saddle with their own clothes. So they take off their clothes and put it on the donkey so that Jesus can sit on it. I don't have another word right now to describe those people except to say that they might be fanatics. Why would you do that? But they do it. And then he says, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. So other people then took their clothes and they put them on the road. I don't think this is like paved road or, or tarred road. I think this is dead road. So they are taking their finest clothes, the clothes that they have, and they are putting it on the floor so that a donkey can walk on it. I don't have another word except fanatic. Why would you do that? But here's the crazy part. They took what they had so that Jesus could do a procession into the town. Processions were usually done by kings to proclaim to everyone how great they were. So processions were a beautiful thing. They were reserved for the most powerful horse, the most beautiful um, drapings. (laughs) That's the only word I can think of. They were reserved for beautiful stuff, beautiful beautiful things would be placed on the ground so that the king could do the procession and everybody would see that it's beautiful. But what happens when poor people who have nothing want to bring glory to God? They take out of that which is very little and they give that to God. You know, I always wonder... Why Jesus said, go to the person with a donkey? Why wasn't it a person with a horse? Because I'm sure there were people who had horses, right? I always wonder if maybe the reason was that Jesus knew that the hearts of the people with horses would be more hardened. And they wouldn't be able to let go. But Jesus goes to the people 
who have nothing. And they take out of the nothing that they don't have and they find a way to glorify him with what they have. It says they cut branches down. And they put the branches down so that Jesus can go into the city on a donkey. See what happens next. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They recognize that Jesus is here. So they start worshiping out of the fullness of their hearts. They start worshiping him. And they start declaring to everybody that this is the son of David. This is the Messiah we've been waiting for. He has arrived. Look at him. I can just see the people who are maybe looking outside their houses, looking at this procession happening and going, what is wrong with these people? Don't they have something better to be doing? Don't they have things that they could be doing at this moment? Why has this man captured their hearts like this? So that's what happened. The next verse says this. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? Can you imagine this guy comes into the city with a procession, with people shouting and saying that this is the true king. And, but the people who are shouting, this is the true king, you're just thinking, but you don't even have a horse, you're using a donkey. And people are going, but who is this man? Isn't it weird sometimes when we stand in that place of great worship and we worship Jesus for who he is, people around us just don't understand. When you are holding to faith at a space where people are saying, there is no way this is going to turn around, but you look at them, you say, you don't know my Jesus. People look at you and they don't understand why you are still worshiping when you're going through the stuff you're going through and you're like, you don't know him like I do. You've never seen him like I've seen him. He's never done for me. He's never done for you what he's done for me. Oh, let me change that. He has done for me what he has done for you. You just don't know it yet. Because if you knew it, you would be like me right now. So the people ask, who is this? I love the answer that the, the people doing a procession for Jesus give. This is what they say. This is the prophet Jesus. My goodness, guys, have you ever given a wrong answer in your life? <laughs> this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The people who are worshiping Jesus, the people who are, who are doing a procession for Jesus don't even have the full understanding of who he is. They have a limited revelation of who he is. They don't realize that he is going to die in a couple of days. They don't know that he's going to be resurrected. Yet, with the limited understanding that they have, they give their truest worship. Oh, what a burden to you and I. It's a light burden though, because we know better. So when we worship him, we worship knowing that he is the king of kings. He is the resurrected one. 
So we worship with a full understanding, full knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers. People loved Jesus so much that they took what they didn't, what took from the little that they had and gave him. The very next thing that Jesus does is he goes to the temple. And yes, what was happening in the temple, the temple people were taking advantage of the people that wanted to give to God. They were taking advantage of the fact that in us, there is this desire to give to God everything we have. We were created to worship God. When we look at God, we cannot help but give him all of us. We love him. But in the midst of that, there are some people that take advantage of that. There are some people that take advantage of the fact that we want to give everything to God. And what they start doing is they start taking that which was meant to go to God. They take it to themselves. That broke Jesus' heart. It made him angry. So he gets in there. <laughs> And he chases them out. Do you know what happens after he's chased them out? It says that the, those who were lame, those who were blind, then came into him and they were healed. What happens when the people of God give to God everything that they have and no one is stealing from them as they give to God what is theirs? An atmosphere of miracles is created. An atmosphere of miracles is created. Back to our word. Were these people fanatics? Were they extremists? What if I propose to you Maybe fanatic is the wrong word altogether. Maybe the right word to describe these people is that they were devoted. They were devoted. Oh no, they were not extremists, they were not fanatics, they were just people who were devoted to God. The dictionary defines devoted as having strong loyalty, affection, or dedication. You know, I'm not a fanatic about my wife, but I am devoted to her. I've seen her go through the most difficult things, and I've seen her come out the other side still loving God. And I cannot help but fall in love with her every other day. I am devoted to her. See, the difference between a fanatic is that fanatics are just attached to the cause, but devoted people are attached to the people. A fanatic has no relationship with the person that, or the cause that they are fighting for, the person behind the cause that they are fighting for. But devoted people, we know Jesus in and out. He knows us in and out. So when you, when you wake up in the morning, he's there. 
As you're walking the rest of your day, he is there. As you go to sleep at night, he is there. How can you not be devoted to him? How can you not love him and give him everything that you have?